The reading is taken from the book of Genesis, chapter 8, verse 20, reading through chapter 9, verse 17. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and took some of every clean animal, and some of every clean bird, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from every man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth, and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you. As many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth, and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. The word of the Lord. Almighty Father, we live in your world. It's, it's a world filled with beauty. It's a world marred by tragedy. It's a complex world, and, and so is our lives. Will you... Give us your Holy Spirit that we may see you 
see your beauty, see your truth, see your goodness, see your promise from the vantage point of our complex world and our complex lives, that we may find ourselves in your story, your better story, and there find out who we really are and the path for us to follow in this time that we have. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please have a seat, and uh, it'd be helpful if you turn back in your service sheet to the second reading. The first reading was last week. The second reading is this week. We put them together two weeks in a row so that you have the context. And I'm, I want to start with a question I asked last week and look at it from a different perspective. Um, if you've been around Emmanuel for any length of time, you will know what probably I'm about ready to say, and you can feel free to roll your eyes if you've heard it too many times, but Emmanuel exists to... Uh, can we do this together? Do we know it well enough? Come on, come on, lean forward. Uh, we love your voice. Come on. Emmanuel exists to see, describe, and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of New York City. Well done. Go team. Um, specifically, the, the last bit of that, for the flourishing of New York City, why is that there? Uh, what does that mean? Um, lots of things. Here's one way to think of it. Um, we want to be a people, we want to be a church that has a generous posture towards uh, the world beyond our church, beyond our congregation. We don't want to exist merely for ourselves. We don't want to be a church who cares only for those who want to hang out within these walls and agree with us. We don't want to be uh, merely an inward-looking tribe. Um, rather, we want to be a church that seeks the common good. Uh, we want to be a church that cares about people outside our church in this community. And particularly, we want to uh, care for people who are different from us and, and who disagree with us sometimes. Uh, why? Why do we want that posture? Um, why would we want to seek the common good instead of just being uh, primarily uh, focused on our own little tribe? Well, our reading is going to explain that, um, and we'll get to that in just a second. But before I do that, I just want to point out why this is a very important issue. Um, I think all of us know uh, that there are um, lots of conversations going around right now in kind of the wider society about um, things like increasing isolation, uh, increasing loneliness, increasing tribalism of all kinds of different sorts. And you look around the world and there's uh, hot wars abroad and there's culture wars at home. And one of the urgent questions that we were asking is, uh, will we fracture and splinter and will we fight and Will we fail to treat each other well? And while that is happening on the one hand, and I don't think I need to make a big argument for that being the case, uh, while that's happening on the one hand, on the other hand, um, some of the um, convictions that previously shaped our common moral foundations between the religious community and the irreligious community and broadly, some of those foundations are being called into question. Here's one example. Uh, you all know Harare as a um, kind of a public thinker, very popular, um, and um, he talks about how, uh, he argues that things like human rights and the notion of human equality uh, has, as he puts it, quote, no objective validity. Widely read, 
Now, he's not saying that we should give up on things like human equality and, and, uh, and human rights. That's not, I, I don't think that's what he wants. But he is saying that, um, he's trying to point out that they are not rooted in human biology, and they're not rooted in the natural sciences, and therefore he argues that they are a product of the human imagination, and they're not grounded in something bigger or more real or more enduring than the human imagination. And my point is this, if you take the uh, splintering that, is, that we are at risk of in our society and combine that um, with a deep uncertainty about some of the moral foundations that gave us things like human rights and human equality, you put those two things together and it's not hard to see that there's some peril. Make sense? Well, how shall we then respond? Because we could uh, fear the future. One response, we could rage against the culture. Uh, and, but today I want to say, Emmanuel, neither of those paths are our path. Um, why? Here's my argument. Um, what I want to say is in this moment, this moment, we need to rediscover God as he presents himself in this second reading. The reason for that is um, when we find in this second reading is a God who makes a covenant for the common good, for the whole world, and this is a God who seeks the common good of all, and when we grasp this covenant that we get to read about, we're going to experience a deep motivation to seek the common good in our world, irrespective of the chaos that may be going on around us. That's what I want to show you and ask three questions. Um, what is this covenant? How does it change everything? And how does it motivate us? Okay, let's go to the passage. Take a look at this covenant. Um, look at the second reading, beginning at verse 20. And um, this is a remarkably tender moment in the Bible. Um, remember the backstory. So we are uh, nine chapters into the book of Genesis. Genesis begins with a, this beautiful uh, description of how God creates everything. And uh, chapters 1 and chapter 2 of Genesis are beautiful, but after that, God's relationship with humanity goes downhill fast. Uh, in Genesis chapter 3, humanity rebels against God, but by Genesis chapter 6, violence has become so widespread that God looks at humanity and regrets making us. And then God stops the violence with a flood. At the same time, God rescues Noah and his family, and that's where we pick up the story. And the first thing Noah does after being rescued is he worships. And more specifically, he sacrifices. He uh, kills some animals, burns them, um, and, um, well, that's a very strange thing. Um, it's very strange to us, sacrificing animals, but it's very important in the Bible, what's going on, many things, here's two. On the one hand, these sacrifices are a reckoning for sin, and on the other hand, these sacrifices are an act of thanksgiving. So they're a reckoning for sin, so it's as if Noah is saying something like this, um, God, um, all of humanity has sinned, and our sin and our violence and our corruption is big enough and deep enough and grievous enough that it deserves our death. But nevertheless, please accept these sacrifices as reckoning for the death that we deserve. They're a reckoning for evil and for sin. But on the other hand, they're an act of thanksgiving because Noah knows himself and his family to be a rescued people. 
He knew that he had been rescued by God's mercy. And so Noah is saying something like this. God, you rescued me in your mercy. You rescued my family. Thank you, and I love you for that. And so Noah's love and thanksgiving reaches up to God. And look at how he responds. Verse 21. He responds with pleasure and resolve. Uh, verse 21, the Lord smells the pleasing aroma of the sacrifices. You hear the pleasure in that. I know it's weird. And do you see the word pleasing? Uh, that word in Hebrew sounds an awful lot like Noah's name. And I think that's on, par on purpose. And the Lord is saying um, he accepts Noah's reckoning, he accepts Noah's sacrifice, but it's also saying that Noah, or that the Lord is not just happy with the sacrifice, he's delighted with his people, he's delighted with Noah. But Emmanuel, what happens next is a turning point in the Bible and in the history of the world, because the Lord makes a new resolution. Verse 21, the camera angle shifts from Noah's sacrifice and the aroma going up to the Lord's heart. You get to look into God's own thoughts. And when you look into the Lord's heart, you find him thinking about the human heart. And more specifically, he looks straight at the evil of the human heart. Verse 21, the Lord fully considers that, quote, the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Now, think with me. The Lord is reflecting on humanity. And the Lord knows that if he allows humanity to continue, that evil will result because the inclination of the human heart is evil. And in that moment, he had a choice. He could have stopped it all. But that's not what the Lord does. The Lord resolves to show mercy. And Emmanuel, it's impossible to overstate the significance of that decision. The Lord decides to show mercy upon future generations, including our own, despite the fact that he knows that no generation will deserve that mercy. Now, pause here and notice two important things. First of all, notice the impact of Noah's sacrifice. The sacrifice of one yields mercy for many. Keep that in your mind. The second thing to notice is the difference between the Lord's heart and the human heart. The human heart leans towards evil. That doesn't mean all of us are as evil as we could be, but it does mean we have a default setting that wants to run in the wrong direction. On the other hand, the Lord's heart leans towards mercy. I wonder if that surprises you. But keep going. Because the Lord's resolution doesn't remain private. The Lord doesn't keep his private thoughts in his heart. What he does is he writes it in the sky and he goes public with it and he ratifies it with a universal covenant. Look at the end of the reading, verse 12, toward the end of the reading. God says, this is the sign of the covenant. Everybody say covenant. Just trying to help you remember. That I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. That includes us. I have set my bow, that's a rainbow, in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Now, the word covenant is crucial. Uh, Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs uh, says that this covenant 
is the central concept of the Hebrew Bible. And he contrasts um, this, he, he was the chief rabbi of Great Britain for a, a very long time. He contrasts the idea of contract with the idea of covenant. Just listen. In a contract, two or more individuals, each pursuing their own interests, come together to make an exchange for mutual benefit. We all know about that. A, a covenant is something different. In a covenant, two or more individuals, each respecting the dignity and the integrity of the other, come together to form a bond of love and trust, to share their interests, and sometimes even to share their own lives, and they pledge their faithfulness to one another. A contract is a transaction. A covenant is a relationship, or to put it slightly differently, a contract is about interests, whereas a covenant is about identity. It's about you and me becoming an us. And that's why contracts benefit, but covenants transform. Now, keep that in your mind and bring that to the reading. God is making a promise. He is making a covenant with the whole world, and God is pledging his faithfulness to the world for all future generations. And in making that covenant, he transformed the deepest identity of this whole universe. He's saying something like this. He's saying, whole world, I'm going to adopt a posture of mercy towards you. I will not destroy the world with a flood again, but instead I'm going to support the flourishing of life. I'm going to support human life, says God, but I'm also going to support animal life and plant life and the seasons and the climate. And then he says, and I want you all to look at the rainbow, verse 13. It's as if the Lord says, count the rainbow as my signature in the sky, ratifying this covenant that as long as the rainbow endures, so long will this covenant stand strong. You ever seen a rainbow? The covenant still stands. What difference does it make? If that's the covenant, how does it change everything? Well, here's how. This covenant means that mercy and justice is woven into the fabric of our world. Think about the mercy of God for a minute. Um, God shows his mercy in this covenant by not sending another flood, despite the violence that might warrant it. But it's not just that. All through this reading, it teems with life. Look at uh, chapter 8, verse 22, towards the beginning of the reading. Um, God says he promises that cold and heat and harvest time and seed time and so forth is going to continue. Those are all benefits of a climate. It says that God cares about ecology and the climate. Why? Why does he care about that? Because of the covenant of mercy. Chapter 9, verse 10. Every beast. He makes this covenant with every species of animal. That tells us that God cares about every animal and every life form. God cares about biodiversity. Why? Because of this covenant a covenant of mercy with the whole world. And in a very unique way, God cares about human life. Chapter 9, verse 1, he says, be fruitful and multiply, which means God wants humans to make families and raise children. Why? Why is that so important? It's because of his mercy. 
Verse 3, God wants every human being to have enough food. Did you know that? Why? Because of his mercy. Friends, what this means is that environmental ethics and economic ethics and ethics of life all rest upon the unchanging foundation of God's covenant of mercy. Everybody take a deep breath. Everybody breathe in. Breathe out. Well done. Feels good. Whether you know it or not, everything in this world, including that breath, pulses with the mercy of God. But there's a problem, and I can imagine somebody saying, hang on, wait a minute, there's a huge problem. What's the problem? Well, the problem is, I can hear somebody saying, is if God has promised to show mercy to humanity, but he did that knowing full well that humans would perpetrate terrible evil in the, down through the generations, then why doesn't that make God an accomplice of evil? Why doesn't this, this uh, covenant support the spread of wickedness? Great question. Look at verse 5. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Here's the deal. God's covenant weaves mercy into the fabric of our world, but it also weaves justice into the fabric of our world as well. Look at those verses and, can, and follow the logic. Begin with the idea of the image of God. So, um, uh, every human is made in God's image. We saw that in Genesis chapter 1, but here it, it, it does a new job. Here, the idea of God's image becomes weight-bearing for the notion of justice. What this means is that God has given something of his own dignity to every human person. And because God has given his, something of his own dignity to every human person in a way that isn't the case with the rest of creation, what that means is if somebody murders that dignity or if somebody abuses that dignity, then it means that God takes it personally. And God is going to require a reckoning and he wrote that reckoning into the covenant. And I want you to see, Emmanuel, that this is part of the headwaters of the notion of human equality and human rights. They are both based upon the image of God and the covenant of God with all the earth. Now, I said before that some people uh, point out that um, they question the reality of human uh, equality and human rights because they do not find it written into our biology. And they do not find it in the uh, evolutionary past record. And there's some truth in that. The image of God is not something that you can measure or amputate or augment. You may have great abilities, you, have, you may have very limited abilities, but if you're human, you bear the image of God. The image of God does not rest upon a characteristic. It rests upon the promise of God. The image of God is given before birth. The image of God continues through death and beyond it. 
The image of God is not a religious identity. You may be a Christian, you may not be a Christian, you may be an atheist, you may be something else altogether. But the image of God is real even if you don't believe in it. Because it rests upon the decree of God, the gift of God, and it's written into his covenant. And the image of God is not a political identity. You may lean left and you may mean lean right. You may be a citizen of a great nation. You may be without a nation at all. But you still bear the image of God. And because it does not rest on politics or citizenship, it rests upon the decree of God. One of the things that that means is that no government and no law can cancel the image of God. No law and no government can take away the image of God no matter what their bold claims. And when governments and when laws try to take away the image of God, they need to know that the God of the Bible is a God of reckoning and he is a God of justice and a God who never forgets his promises and he always wins in the end. And every government and every law that dehumanizes another has been on notice from this moment. And Emmanuel, I need to ask, ask you this question. In the midst of the fracturing and the splitting and the tribalisms of our time, do you honor the image of God in, the, in your cultural opponent? The answer to that question will determine a great deal about your belief. So Emmanuel, the covenant of God weaves justice and mercy into the fabric of our world. And I hope you can see how this motivates us to pursue the common good. Can you see why it should make us want to promote the common good in our city? What should we do? What should we do when we look at the troubles of our time? Because I can't tell the future. Should we rage or should we run? course not. Why? Because we belong to a better God than that. We belong to the God of this covenant, a God who wove mercy and justice into the fabric of our world, and therefore, come what may, irrespective of whether or not there's questions about whether or not the center might hold, and none of us can see the future, but regardless of all of that, our job is to look at our God and to extend mercy and to promote his justice, because that's who our God is. And this is not a matter of great heroics. This is a matter of everyday simple action. It means seeking the common good in the midst of your family. It means promoting justice and extending mercy in your home and in your neighborhood. It means looking at your workplace and in your industry and asking, what does mercy look like here? How can I reflect the justice of God in this place? It means looking about your city and in your neighborhood and asking, how can I be a partner of mercy and a partner of justice in this place? It means looking out at the people with whom you vigorously disagree and loving them and blessing them because they bear within them the image of God and how you respond to them is one that God takes personally. But if you're a Christian, then you have a motive that runs far stronger. The sacrifice of one man led to the mercy of, for many. That was true of Noah. But if you're a Christian, you know that that is so much more true of Christ. God never canceled this covenant, but he also never planned for it to be the end. 
Jesus Christ came as the better Noah to establish a better covenant through giving himself as a better sacrifice. And when Jesus hung upon the cross, he was the perfect reckoning for the sins of the whole world because God never overlooks the sin and the violence and the evil of our time or of the human heart. He deals with it. And he dealt with it by becoming human. And in becoming human, he was blessing the life of this world and saying the life of this world matters and is important. And when he gave his life, he gave his life to reckon for the justice that is required by a holy God. And in his resurrection, he, he is the triumphant one over sin and death and evil. And he, Jesus Christ, reigns now as the ultimate enforcer of justice and the greatest bestower of mercy. And therefore, if you belong to him, if you belong to him, you are a beneficiary of infinite mercy. And the security that Jesus Christ gives you for your eternal flourishing should free you to go out and seek the temporal flourishing of this world. Can you feel that motivation? You've got to see the magnitude of mercy. And if you are not a Christian, then I have the happy news. And the happy, the happy task I get to tell you is that infinite mercy, infinite mercy knocks at your door. A greater covenant stands before you. You have all your life benefited from this covenant of the common good. But there is a covenant of eternal flourishing that Jesus Christ purchased with his blood and he offers it to you now. Will you say yes? And so, friends, open your eyes. And when you see the tumult of this world, look back to the God who tells a better story. That's the real story that you're in. And then live your, your role in the midst of that truer story as you engage in the midst of this world and seek the flourishing of everyone around you because God has sought your flourishing. Amen. Hello everyone, my name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com give.